Kate. And I'm Anna. And in this week's episode, I speak to Venita Gudinho and Mariko Braswell, two amazing women who have actually worked with quite closely in the last 12 months, uh, particularly on the topic of financial inclusion. And they've both actually taught me quite a lot. It's sort of, I started speaking to both of them early on when I was really developing this interest in financial inclusion. And they both have such vast backgrounds in this space. Thinking about these two um, experts together, it's a really, it's a really amazing combination. And they've actually partnered up to create the APAC Financial Wellness Initiative. So I speak to them a little bit about that and just find out what does financial inclusion mean to them? Why is it so important? And obviously, it's a topic I'm really passionate about, but it was just a really fun conversation about something that the three of us are just so invested in. And I think it would have been a conversation we could have for many hours, but we just tried to keep it um, nice and short. But it was it was a really it was a good one, and I think there's a lot we can learn from different global perspectives. And they're really working hard to actually form these connections globally to really make a, a wide scale impact in financial inclusion. I was going to say very on brand for you to be talking <laughs> um, about that in this week's episode. Um, the APAC sort of that APAC region, I guess, is an interesting one. What I really took away from my conversation with Joe back in the first episode is just how varied the APAC region is and how many different challenges there are in terms of solving specific financial inclusion um, challenges in different markets that have um, very varied populations, have um, have quite different cultures. Um, we kind of talk about it as one region, but there is a lot to really unpick in terms of how you uh, go from, from market to market to try and solve that financial inclusion issue. And I guess the other thing that's really interesting to hear about is just the, the point around collaboration, which again has come mm-hmm. up quite a lot in some of our recent chats, having different people bringing their really specific experience to trying to solve a problem together. Definitely. Um, yeah, one that we both, I think, quite interested in hearing more about. Yeah, I think it's, it's the ultimate combination of fintech and financial inclusion, which is just both of our favourite topics. Um, and I think something else that we discussed that I thought was particularly interesting was just thinking about the role of money and how that different uh, how that differs in different cultures because I think a lot of what we what we think about is through our own lens and I think it's really important to think about how is it different you know based on how you're brought up your culture where you live you know the country that you're in and I think there's there's a lot we can learn from these global perspectives so really looking forward to handing over to this episode and I hope everyone enjoys it let's get into it Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the RFI Group Digital Banker podcast. With me today are two very qualified women in the field of financial and digital inclusion, and I'll hand over to each of them to give a more detailed introduction. But just at a high level, I have with me Dr. Venita Gudinho, who is the CEO and Managing Director of Financial Resilience Australia, and Mariko Braswell, who is the CEO and co-founder of Move78 in Singapore. Now, we're going to be speaking about a topic which I know I've already mentioned how much I love, but it's going to be the topic of financial inclusion and also digital inclusion and what can be done to improve this globally. And it's, it's quite a big topic, but I think we're going to have some, some really interesting conversation today. Uh, Vanita, I might start with you to introduce yourself and talk us through your experience in banking, academia and the nonprofit sector as well. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. And hello to everyone who's listening today. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk. As I I say, I can talk underwater on this topic about financial inclusion, health and well-being. So as um, Anna has mentioned, I'm Benita Godino, the CEO of Financial Resilience Australia. And financial inclusion 
health and well-being has been at the core of everything that I've done in my professional career. I've changed hats many times, Anna. Um, I started as a banker. I then went on to do some academic work, um, a PhD on uh, financial wellness and understanding in Aboriginal Australia. I've worked in a not-for-profit organization, providing microfinance to those on low incomes. And I now uh, am a social entrepreneur, using all of my experience and research to try and help people who um, have financial difficulties. And I also moonlight as someone who looks at the issues of mental health and the stress that not having enough money or worrying about money can cause. So in many ways, the, the common thread across all of my roles throughout my professional and personal life has been how to help people to manage their money better so that they can be more included, have better financial health and well-being. So this is a topic I'm absolutely passionate about, and I'm so proud to be able to um, share some of my learnings with you today. Thanks, Vanita. I'm definitely really looking forward to hearing more about all of what you mentioned, particularly around money and financial inclusion as well. So I think there's a lot that we could talk about. Um, but Marika, I might hand over to you now to introduce yourself further and outline some of your work in fintech inclusion and innovation as well. Great. Um, thanks so much, Anna. And thank you so much for having us both here today. Um, I'm the CEO of Move78, and uh, we're based here in Singapore. And we're a consultancy for tech companies looking to expand in Asia. And we primarily focus on companies that are in digital inclusion in finance, health, and education. Um, I have uh, uh, over a decade in uh, fintech in general, um, beginning back in the US, working for one of the first robo-advisors uh, that was helping to um, helping baby boomers to identify if they were prepared for retirement. Um, and then uh, once I arrived in Singapore seven years ago, um, that was right when fintech was uh, brand new and new to the region. And so um, I embarked uh, as part of that ecosystem right away, working with um, Next Money, which was then Next Bank, helping to establish um, global chapters, and then working with a number of fintechs um, throughout the years, primarily in marketing and PR, uh, and also with innovators, um, but in media relations as well. But also um, uh, with Move78, we started to focus more on um, financial inclusion, and then digital inclusion more in 2019, so. Thank you, and I can think you can already see why you both work so well together. And I think I've already learned so much in the last probably 12 months of getting to know both of you and learning more about your work because it's that, it's not just financial inclusion, but it's all the other things that actually are involved. And I think to start the conversation off, it'd be really great to learn a little bit more about what financial inclusion means to both of you. And Vanita, I might start with you to just let us know what it means to you and why it's so important to you as well. Sure. So um, let me start with a bit of an academic nerdy definition of what financial inclusion actually started as. So many, many decades ago, um, researchers discovered that bank branches were withdrawing from poorer locations and locations which were harder to reach, and that these populations were having less access to finance than those in a wealthier and easier to reach location. So for example, remote and rural locations, poorer socioeconomic um, you know, communities and neighborhoods had less access to banking, and they started calling this financial exclusion. 
So the original definition was very much about access to finance. Um, as time has progressed, this definition has broadened to not just the access to finance, but also the usage of banking products and services, particularly finance from mainstream organizations. So that was the original definition of financial inclusion. But over the years, people have recognized that it's not just about having access to finance or even using finance. It also needs to look at the demand side of the issue, which is capability. How capable are people of using these products and services most effectively so that they can lead healthy and resilient lives? How can the system also support them to recover from financial shocks? As we all know, global financial crisis showed us how financial crisis can happen to anyone. And COVID over the last couple of years has just exacerbated that. So the concept of building resilience to financial shocks started getting um, mixed into the debate as well. And I'm so pleased that over the last few years, we've also started looking at positive aspects of this, calling it financial health and financial well-being. So although the definition started very much from an access and usage of finance, it has broadened in my mind and how I like to talk about financial inclusion to include not just supply side issues of access to finance, designing products and services that actually meet the needs of different kinds of consumers, but also the demand side of the issue, helping consumers to be able to make good decisions so that they can achieve their financial goals, whatever those goals might be. So to me, as my, you know, most of my working life has been in finance. So money, I know, sits at the heart of almost every aspect of our life. So to me, the ability to manage money and to use the financial system in a way that meets your financial goals, whatever those might be, is a crucial life skill. And that's why the whole concept of financial inclusion, health and well-being is the core of everything that I've done, irrespective of which hat I'm wearing as a researcher or as someone working in a not-for-profit environment or someone looking after member interests, which is what I'm currently doing. So I hope that kind of gives you a flavor for what inclusion means to me and why I'm so passionate about it. Definitely. And I really like the point about well-being as well, because I think if we think about financial inclusion starting from exclusion, so looking at who's excluded and how can we minimize that exclusion, but then also thinking about how can being included or how can being financially literate or even just resilience and well-being, it's sort of putting a positive spin on it as well. So it's thinking about how can people engage with money in a more positive way, even in, in a more simple way, just what does money mean to them and how are they managing it? Um, Marika, did you want to add anything on financial inclusion and what it means to you? Um, sure, it, uh, although Vanita, um, she pretty much covered all the bases there and <laughs> I'm in full agreement. But um, simply put on my end, I, I really think of financial inclusion as um, leveling the playing field, um, so to speak. Um, it, it's not just access to the appropriate products, uh, uh, but it's also um, making sure that people know how to use them in a sustainable way. Um, it, that that's all it is, um, and it's beyond um, it's beyond just having an app or a bank account. They uh, people need to know how to use it to be able to thrive. So um, we're we're both saying the same thing. Benita was a bit more eloquent though. <laughs> both of those I think was really, really helpful. And I think both of your vast experience also really shows in how you think about financial inclusion. And I know personally, I've learned a lot from both of you about financial inclusion. And I think even recently just learning more about 
the role of money for people and how a lot of that depends on how you're brought up and the role models that you were exposed to and you know how your parents viewed money or other people in your space and Venetia, I'd be interested to start with you on the topic of money and thinking about um, your topic, well, your PhD that you did was about financial wellbeing for Indigenous Australians. Um, so I'd really like to know, based on that research, what do you see the role of culture plays in sentiment towards money and money management? Sure, thank you for that question. Um, because, you know, most of my life as a banker, so I didn't start as an academic, I started as a banker. And every day I'd be helping people with their money and every single person who walks into my door, I was really always interested. How do they think about money? How do they feel about money? And how does that influence how they actually use and manage money? So it was always a question that had been at the back of my heart. And as someone who then migrated to Australia from a different culture, and so my background is a Hindu, I was brought up in India, uh, and coming into an Anglo-Celtic, you know, almost like an Anglo culture, which is a very much a Western civilization, I was always looking to see how do different cultures feel about money and the system, the way it works in Australia. So the question that I asked in my PhD was how does Aboriginal Australia think about money, how do they feel about money, and how does that influence the way in which they want to use money, therefore what that means for their financial health and well-being, how can the system support them better? So that was a basic question that I asked in my PhD. And I was so pleased at the end of my PhD to have quite a clear answer to that. And the answer was that Aboriginal Australia, in my view, had a very culturally distinctive understanding of money. And that dis cultural distinction of money actually really strongly influences the way in which people feel about money, whether they want to engage with money as a whole, and then how they want to use it so that they can achieve their financial goals. So that was what my PhD discovered, that there were four distinctly, uh, culturally distinctly ways in which Aboriginal Australia viewed money. And uh, I went on then to explain how that distinctive view that influences the way in which they want to use money and therefore the ways in which the system support them so that they can use money in ways that um, reinforce their cultural identity instead of clash with their cultural identity and helps them to use it so that they can improve their well-being. And if, you know, if, if you want to know the, what those four things were, one, I found that the boundary within which money flows in an Aboriginal household is larger than the nuclear family. Uh, so as a banker, most of us think that money flows between parents and children in a nuclear household. That's how most of the policies are set up. But that was not true in Aboriginal Australia. I found that it flowed through connections and family and kin. And even across the whole community, money was being shared. Uh, it wasn't just in the nuclear household. The next thing I found was that money was being prioritized for caring for family. And this was a broad definition of family not so much for saving individually. So this has a big effect on how you can motivate people to save money in order to meet goals, because those goals may not be individual goals like buying a car or a house. It may be family or community goals, such as achieving something that the entire community can benefit from. Um, another thing I found was the role of the elders in helping people to use money wisely. Um, you know, this whole concept of learning about money from your parents was very strongly reinforced in the Aboriginal community, but it may not be your parents, it may be the community elders whom the community looks to, to be able to use money wisely. 
So instead of teaching just the children about how money should be used wisely, we also needed to make efforts to teach the elders ways in which they could use money wisely. Because the last understanding that I had was that money was imposed on this culture from the outside. So it was very much a culture that had no concept of money and it wasn't needed because it was very much a trading culture. But when money was abruptly introduced with colonization, it created a lot of grief and stress because it was outside the culture. So I really feel that these basic understandings of how the community wants to use money and feels about money is really important for bankers to understand so that they can help the community to use money in ways that actually achieve their goals instead of us trying to clarify what those goals should be from a different worldview. So I hope I've answered your question in terms of how feelings and culture can influence money and what it means to people. Absolutely. And I think that role of culture is so critical, especially, I guess, when thinking about how financial services products and the industry itself is designed. And it's typically, you know, made by you know, Western culture. It's made by people who think about money in a certain way. And I think that's such a critical point when thinking about why people potentially manage money in a different way to what um, a Westerner might expect or why in one culture they're doing something which seems you know, impractical for another culture, but in reality, it's just different. And I think that acknowledgement is quite important to financial inclusion. I think your work really, really highlights that in the Australia context as well. So thanks for sharing a bit more information about that. Um, I think as well, when we think about the role of money, how we make payments is important as well. And something that we've been talking about with the pandemic is the impact on payments trends. So we've seen increase in contactless payments, such as credit cards, uh, debit cards, particularly debit cards. But we've also been discussing the impact of cash and particularly with the pandemic where there was some stores in Australia and I know in the UK and some other countries, cash was actually banned to reduce the risk of transmitting um, the virus. Uh, Mariko, I'd like to ask you about the idea of a cashless future and what <laughs> role you think cash does play for some segments of the market? Um, yeah, th this is a huge question and everyone's always trying to predict when uh, the world will be cashless, but um, more important than asking when, um, I think the more important question is uh, asking how. How will we get there? And um, how will we do it without widening the gap of those that are digitally excluded? So um, you, you can't go cashless if there's still 1.7 billion people in the world that are unbanked. So, um, and not in formal financial and don't have access to formal financial services. So uh, yeah, it, it's gonna it's gonna take a while <laughs> to get there. But um, and if you look at certain segments like uh, migrant workers, um, uh, cash cash is, uh, has been vital uh, for them, and as well as um, uh, in the U.S. and California, I know agriculture workers. Um, and growers and pickers, uh, they get paid by check, not digitally, because the farmers prefer to have that little bit of float uh, with a check. And then the, the growers and pickers, they actually cash that check and hold on to the cash. They don't have a bank account. They have an agreement with uh, a particular bank um, that they feel comfortable with. Uh, and, then, and then foreign domestic workers um, here in Singapore and throughout the region, um, a, a number of them 
feel uncomfortable. 50% uh, I've heard are unbanked here in Singapore. Um, you know, a number of them, they just don't feel comfortable walking into a bank. It could be, uh, it's just intimidating for them. So what, what to do about that, really? There, there's um, apps that are helping those communities, um, but uh, cash is still vital in the meantime. So to, to get to a cashless society, all the innovation, there, there needs to be plans to, um, to work in tandem along uh, you know, these cash options as well as um, cashless options. Um, for instance, the stores you were talking about, um, the Amazon cashless store in uh, California, the article you had done um, about those stores, uh, of course, people are being excluded by that. Um, how can a homeless person <laughs> even um, enter to get uh, a cup of coffee? If And there are cases of um, laundromats uh, now being more digital instead of uh, using coins. And that, that, that can't help the, the very poor or homeless. So um, until, until everybody is included digitally, um, it, it's just going to exacerbate things. So um, it's an opportunity for innovators and solution providers to um, think ahead uh, and be responsible what, about, what they're, um, about what they're providing that, to make sure that, you know, that they're not widening this gap. I think part of that as well is thinking about who is potentially excluded in when we're trying to innovate and make things faster and more streamlined, like the laundromat example that I haven't heard of that. That is so interesting because you'd be thinking that how useful is that for students or for people who are already making mobile payments? It's innovative. But then for the people who are always using coins for that, how does that so does that mean they can no longer wash their clothes? And it's one of those unintended consequences when trying to fix or make something easier in actually meaning that a whole group no longer can wash their clothes. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's time for the innovators to just have a wider lens um, and think about potential downsides at the same time. It doesn't take that much effort. <laughs> yeah, I guess as well <laughs> when thinking about designing these, it's just thinking, okay, who who's potentially excluded and how do we mitigate that? Do we make sure that there are four washing machines that are still coin operated but I guess if you exactly. don't have that thought mm. and I think this ties in exactly. with my next question actually which I know is something that you've done quite a bit of work in when thinking about inclusion so beyond just financial mm. inclusion how do you feel the role of health and education and digital inclusion can actually help financial inclusion in, inclusion in society um, well, for MIF78, uh, digital health and education and finance, they're all interconnected, and this leads to uh, well-being, right? You can't um, thrive completely if any one of those pillars are, are lacking, um, and this goes across all economic sectors. I know of people in the U.S. that are well-off, but one um, health emergency um, you know, virtually wipe them out. So, um, and that that's not an uncommon story. So, um, but as far as the consequence of digital exclusion, um, it, it goes back to what I was saying before. It, it's just a widening of the gap that um, is devastating. Um, 
you know, it, it just widens the gap between the haves and have nots. And um, this has been brought to light during the pandemic. Um, the pandemic also uh, brought to light, you know, the haves and have nots with respect to um, distance learning. Um, in India, 90% of homes don't have a, a home-based computer or um, steady Wi-Fi access, or even uh, there are issues with power here and there. So, um, you know, there needs to be solutions for that. Um, and we've been working with a provider for that. So, um, and then uh, there, there, there are good developments though, as far as um, health in FinTech uh, be starting to be combined more uh, in insurance and um, uh, micro lending. But um, I, I, I would just say that, um, you know, Anyway, that <laughs> I should I should end there. I'm just kind of going on. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's I might perfect. just add one thing yeah. if that's okay, Anna. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, there's this concept that is very well understood <clears throat> in medical terms. So it's uh, physical health. It's called the social determinants of health. And what that does is basically talks about how health and well-being uh, is impacted by so many aspects of the society that we live in. Yeah as well yeah. as the economic circumstances, not just of the individual, but of their family and household that they are born in, as well as the local community that they live in, as well as then the national context that they live in. So all of these layers of the ecosystem, the global context, the national context where you live, the local neighborhood that you live in, the family that you live in, and then you individually, each of these layers plays a role in every aspect of health and well-being of the individual, whether that's physical mm -hmm. health, whether it's mental health and well-being or it's financial mm. health and well-being. So to me, all of these are connected and mm. thinking of one without the other is actually only looking at part of the picture. And unless right. we start looking at the ecosystem as a whole, that's when you have unintended consequences like the ones that Mariko was mentioning, because we're only looking at one slice that we're mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to influence, not the whole. So, uh, you know, I, I think the social determinants of health is a really good framework for us mm. to start thinking of every aspect of health and well-being. Mm. I think it also speaks to the fact that exactly like you're saying, financial inclusion and exclusion doesn't exist on its own. It's completely interconnected with all these other components. And I think yeah. when one thing isn't working, then it has these flow on consequences. But also when one group is excluded, there's other reasons why they're excluded as well. So I think it also just shows why financial inclusion is so important to be central when we're designing products, when we're speaking to consumers about what they want, when we're, you know, thinking, especially with fintech, you know, when we're offering new products, new apps, are they accessible for people who are vision impaired or the elderly or people who don't speak English? And if you're not thinking about those things, then your innovation is actually limited. Um, and I think that so we speak a lot about financial inclusion from the consumer point of view. And Benita, I know you've been thinking a little bit about um, beyond just consumers, what about the, the business space? So for business owners, um, what do you think needs to be done to help address inclusion for business owners? I think particularly in the current climate of the pandemic, where we know so many businesses, particularly hospitality, have been really impacted. What do you think really needs to be done to help this group in particular? Well, you know, from the point of view of historically how the industry has responded to issues of exclusion, very often it was first 
um, informed by research. So evidence-based practice is, you know, is something that everyone's used to. But unfortunately, most of the research and the evidence base has looked at the lens of financial exclusion for individuals and households, not really for small businesses. So from my point of view, the evidence base on the exclusion um, that small businesses face and a holistic aspect of that, so not just access to finance, not just usage of accounts and products and services, but also looking at things like capability and the ability to make good commercial decisions and how this impacts from a, a point of view of the health and well-being of the business, these are things that there is gaps in the evidence base, right? And because there's gaps in the evidence base, I really feel that the action that has been taken in order to address these gaps is also fragmented. So there are bits and pieces of efforts which are made across the spectrum of small business, but really no joined up responses have been practiced just which are now starting to be put in place for individuals and households. So I'm absolutely passionate about looking at micro and small businesses because all of the research shows that one of the biggest problems that they face is one lack of personal financial capabilities. So the individual uh, who's in a small business or running a micro business, um, their own capability really strongly influences the commercial viability of their business. And the second thing, which across the world, everyone has found is the lack of access to reliable working capital and finance. This is a common problem that everyone identifies, but no one's looking beyond it to say, are they, in, are they excluded? If they are excluded, what about their health and well-being? How can we measure that? Until we measure it, we won't be able to find ways to actually address and fill those gaps. That's what I'm absolutely passionate about with the Hat of Financial Resilience Australia. I'm trying to do everything I can to define and measure financial exclusion, lack of health and well-being for small and micro businesses, and then looking at practical examples of actions that we can take across all layers of the ecosystem to be able to support them. So what can the business owner do individually? What can their business do? What can their local community do? national community do to support small businesses better and then what can we share across from a global ecosystem so that we are sharing learnings across countries so just as one small example we did a piece of research on women micro entrepreneurs in victoria and we compared their experience to women micro entrepreneurs in sarawak in malaysia and by doing that study we were able to try and find gaps that could add uh, gaps for women in both these contexts and they're very different cultural contexts. But surprisingly, the kinds of gaps that we found were similar. And therefore we were able to influence the governments in these areas to take action to actually support the women based on research which was done in Australia. So as you can see, the more we bring the world together, the more we can share learnings and insights with each other. And to me, that's how we can really help small businesses to also have good health and well-being, along with individuals and um, households. Thanks for that. And then you've touched on the role of evidence-based information and research. And I think that's quite critical to some of the decisions that, that will get made. And I think the more, the more research there is to really even just provide context as to what's happening is always going to be really valued. And I think it'd be really good to know from both of you, actually, who do you feel is best positioned within the financial services ecosystem to actually create these financial inclusion solutions? Or is there not one key player that's necessary? Is it more about collaboration? Uh, Mariko, I might start with you if you had some thoughts on that one. Um, I, I definitely 
I definitely think it's all about collaboration. Um, there's no one entity that can that can make this all work. Everybody needs to work together. Yeah, and I'll add to that, Anna. So with my hat um, in the last few years, uh, this has been the greatest learning that no one sector and even within one sector, no one organization can actually make a difference. Because as we've said, okay. uh, finance sits at the heart of so all aspects of daily living. So it's not just the financial sector, it's even broader uh, across all sectors. But just even in looking at the financial inclusion ecosystem within the financial services sector, all four sectors of the economy, that's the business and the industry, the government, which is you know, charged with supporting those who cannot make good financial decisions or are in financial difficulty. Um, academia, whose job it is to do the research and provide the evidence base, which then the government and the industry can put into practice. And not-for-profit, which is typically the part of the community which responds to the needs of those who are on low incomes or facing some sort of marginalization. Each one of these sectors has a role to play in supporting financial inclusion, health and well-being. And they cannot do this individually. It's only when they work together collaboratively that you can come up with a solution that avoids the unintended consequences that we've been talking about. So unless the ecosystem can collaborate and everyone work together with from the same hymn sheet, the impact on the consumer will be minimized. So to me, I have actually demonstrated this in practice. I set up a cross-sectoral collaboration which had about 40 large leading organizations from each of these sectors, from the government, from the industry, from academia, and from the not-for-profit sector, all working together to improve financial inclusion and well-being in Australia. And I'm really proud to say that that model was really successful. When I went on my Fulbright scholarship to the US and UK, it was a model that they wanted to implement as well. So in many ways, to me, I know, and I have demonstrated that cross-sectoral collaboration is the only way that the ecosystem can genuinely make a difference, which is what the Asia-Pacific Wellness Initiative is all about. And you're predicting my next question. So on the topic of collaboration, um, I do have both of you on this podcast episode today, and I'd love you to talk to our listeners about this new initiative and this partnership that you've formed together. Uh, Marika, I might hand over to you to, to introduce the APAC Financial Wellness Initiative and give us a little bit more insight into the work you're both doing. Sure. Uh, we partnered um, together last year um, during COVID, no, realizing that partnerships were the way to uh, get more accomplished together. And um, the APEC Financial Wellness Initiative was um, soft launched by us last October through a series of events, but it's a cross-sectoral network bringing together those four sectors that uh, Vanita just mentioned, government, industry, academia, nonprofits, as well as innovators and uh, individuals that have a high interest in financial wellness. Um, we're APAC-based, uh, and our four um, pillars of what we'd like to accomplish are um, mapping the ecosystem here in APAC, as well as um, creating a um, hub for information and uh, research findings, as well as um, a platform for um, cross-collaboration and innovation for solutions towards financial wellness, and then also, the, lastly, to help influence policy in the region. Um, it's, it's well known that uh, financial wellness and financial health are much more established in the US and Australia and um, the UK 
And uh, we're happy to um, get it going here in APAC um, and bridge um, the awareness of financial inclusion to financial wellness um, and uh, by forming this organization. So um, we've also been in close contact with uh, the UNCDF um, working in concert with their global coalition on financial health um, to be their APAC portion. So. Fantastic. And Benita, did you want to explain some of the goals that you have for the organization and any, any plans for the next 12 months? We want to change the world, Anna. <laughs> but of course, we have to recognize that, you know, it's the two of us doing this pro bono, um, in addition to the other work that we do. So we're starting small, but we're starting with a crucial gap that I've identified. So to me, you know, evidence-based practice is always the way in which to influence positive action, no matter which um, part of the economy we're looking at. So whether it's government, academia, or not profit, evidence is the one that actually gets you the best action. So what we're starting off is by filling the evidence-based gap in terms of what does financial wellness look like across the Asia-Pacific. So we're very um, happy to be partnering with a really good collaborator, Infisum, um, who's going to help us to put together a report, which is the first report we think, which is going to be filling this gap and baselining what financial health and well-being looks like across the Asia-Pacific. And we hope that this uh, evidence base will then help us to work with those who are passionate about this, um, uh, about this topic and start influencing those four areas that Mariko mentioned. And for our listeners who want to learn more about your work, where's the best place for them to look? Um, I'll jump in here. Uh, right now, it would be our LinkedIn page, the APAC Financial Wellness Initiative LinkedIn page. Um, and then... You could reach out to us there, see all the events that we've been up to, and also our own uh, personal LinkedIn profiles for ourselves, Benita Godinho, uh, and myself, Mariko Braswell, as well as our respective company um, LinkedIn profiles, uh, Moves MBA, PTE, LTD, as well as Financial Resilience Australia. Fantastic. Well, thanks both for your time today. I think that we covered a lot of interesting topics and I know we could probably talk for hours, but I might, I think that's quite a good wrap up point. So thanks again for both of your time and for our listeners, if you do have any more questions from, for Mariko or Benita, please feel free to reach out to them. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Digital Banker Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean.